About 80 years ago, when the Soviet Union invaded Romania, there was a state-run meeting where church leaders had gathered. Attending was a man named Richard Wormbrand, who recalled the events. Quote, one after another, bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same and could coexist. One minister after another said, words of praise toward communism and assure the new government of the loyalty of the church. My wife and I were present at this Congress. Sabina, that's her name, told me, Richard, stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. End quote. Richard took courage and stood up for Jesus that day. Thankfully, Sabina didn't lose her husband to execution. But the price they soon pay would be great. What followed were underground ministries, multiple imprisonments, threats, tortures, and scars. But there were also raised awareness among believers, sympathy, inspiration from his survival story and testimony. The warm brands can say what Paul said in, first, uh, in Philippians 1.12. The things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. But let's rewind a bit. What can prepare Christians for such trials? Are we ready to face a choice between Christ and a godless government? We have great examples of preparation and endurance from church history and in the scriptures. Saw that in Daniel as well. But the greatest example of courageous suffering for Christians comes from Christ Jesus himself. Not only does our Lord show his grit during suffering, he shows us how to brace for it the right way. So let's continue today in Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 53. If you're using your pew Bible, you can go to page 739, 739. Luke 22, 39 to 53. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling, to the, falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, 
Are you betraying the Son of Man with the kiss? When those around them saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. You can treat today's passage essentially in two halves. First, verses 39 to 46 form a neat section of its own. Verse 39 narrates the shift in locations from the previous verses. Verses 40 and 46 serve as bookends as Jesus exhorts his followers to pray. After our Lord demands and demonstrates prayer's importance, we continue in verses 47 to 53. There, Christ shows us how to deal with three problems. One problem is embodied in Judas Iscariot, the false, treacherous apostle. Another problem is represented by the 11 loyal but weak apostles. The third problem is the crowd gathered against Jesus to arrest him as they're under the spiritual power of darkness. This structure and flow gives us a blueprint to face trials and temptation in our own lives. Four points follow. So first, prepare prayerfully for spiritual battle. Prepare prayerfully for spiritual battle. That's verses 39 to 46. Secondly, respond kindly to betrayal. Respond kindly to betray. That's verses 47 to 48. Thirdly, lead peacefully. Lead peacefully during persecution. That's verses 49 to 51. Fourthly, submit faithfully under God's plan. Submit faithfully under God's plan. Verses 52 to 53. First, prepare prayerfully for spiritual battle. I'll spend most time on this point as it is the foundation for others. After Judas Iscariot had left, Jesus and the 11 disciples finished the meal in the upper room and departed from Jerusalem to go to the Mount of Olives. In between was the Kidron Valley, and there was a brook by the same name. It's technically a wadi, which is a stream that forms after heavy rainfall. It wasn't a long trek or an unfamiliar journey. As Luke tells us later in Acts 1.12, the distance was about a Sabbath day journey. That's about three quarters of a mile. About a thousand years before Jesus, King David took the same path as his own son Absalom betrayed and rebelled, and his loyal subjects wept. En route to his destination, Jesus continued to teach the eleven. He predicts their desertion. And once again, Peter singled out for his upcoming denial, or denials, 
But not all the lessons were grim and dark. In John 15 to 17, we see our Lord reaffirming his love, promising the Holy Spirit, and praying for them. They arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane, which was familiar to all the apostles. As John tells us later, Christ often met there with his disciples. So Judas could retrace those steps and lead the mob there even even through the dark of the night. But before they arrive, Jesus asked the disciples to pray while he himself prays. Now it looks like Peter and the sons of Zebedee and James and John were closer to Christ and got a better look at him. And they got a glimpse of our Savior in his trouble, deep distress, and excessive sorrow of his soul, even to the point of death. Now, it's only a faint and momentary glimpse because like the rest of the the apostles there, they fell asleep. They were exhausted because their hearts were sorrowful, their flesh was weak, and their eyes were heavy. But even in their days in stupor, the disciples remembered how Jesus prayed. That's partly because he prayed the same prayer repeatedly. Our Lord prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, with some variation as it goes forward. Luke only records the prayer once, but emphasizes other details that night. Let's try to understand what Jesus said here. What is that one cup? And what are the two wills? We already talked a bit about this, but it's obvious from the context that what's in the cup is unpleasant. It could represent persecution that Jesus would face and later his disciples would face. He promised such cup to John and James earlier. And it's a good guess, and we're getting warmer, but I think the cup in today's passage is a lot hotter. You could say it's hot as the fires of hell. That's because throughout the scriptures, we see cups symbolizing God's just wrath. Poured out on the wicked. There's a cup of trembling and fury, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of the Lord's right hand, the cup of God's indignation and the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. God's own son must drink of this cup. But here's the difference between God's son and us. He didn't do anything wrong to deserve it. Unlike any of us, he has never sinned, not once in thought, word, or deed. So if anyone in this universe could even entertain the idea of not drinking such a cup, it'd be Jesus. But he did drink it to fulfill the scriptures and to save us. But then here's a question. If it's clear that Jesus must drink this cup, why did he even ask the Father about not drinking it in the first place? And that gets us talking about the will of Jesus and the will of the Father. When we study that phrase, my will in verse 42, we see it in a good desire, not a bad one. It's a good thing, the human desire, to stay alive. It's even better to keep oneself wholly close to God and apart from sin. But by going to the cross, by becoming sin in our place, our Lord has subordinated what is good for himself for the sake of our good and for the Father's glory. 
Instead of saying, I'm here to do what I want, he has said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He displayed perfectly the lowliness of mind that esteems others better than oneself, looking out for the interests of others. He wasn't full of himself like us. Instead, he emptied himself. We all know just how hard it is to bend our wills to God's will. Yet Jesus did it. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we can drink the cup of God's blessing. Recall how we sang today and and recall how we sang last Sunday, O Christ, what burdens bow thy head. Here's how the verse goes in the second one. Death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ, was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, now blessings draw for me. Now before I move on to verse 42, I want to challenge non-Christians listening here and now or later in the recording. I have bad news and good news. The bad news is that the cup of God's wrath is set before you because of your sins. If you stay just as you are, you have to gulp it down because you're guilty of breaking God's laws. But here's the good news. If you repent of your sins and turn to Jesus by faith, you don't have to suffer in hell forever. Trust in Christ, his perfect life and works, his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. God saves us by grace alone out of our works. It is the righteousness of his son, not our own. Make the decision soon before you die or before he returns. Now as we move on to verses 43 to 46, I turn to some applications for believers. We have here great lessons about prayer as we imitate our Lord. Consider these subpoints, subpoints A, B, and C. First, sub-point A, we learn that prayer is a supernatural activity. In verse 43, Luke continues to open our eyes to the spiritual warfare behind the scenes. There really was an angel there. This is not allegory like John Bunyan. This is not fiction like Frank Peretti. We don't know exactly how the angel helped Jesus here. Perhaps it was similar to the ministry of angels just after the temptation in the wilderness. That word for strengthen is found in one other place when Paul was converted, baptized, and fed before his evangelism ministry at Damascus in Acts 9. Still hard to tell exactly how. But based on context and parallel passages, we can surmise why Jesus was strengthened. Our Lord has just prayed for the Father's will to be done. It sure seems like the angel was an answer to that request. And he's able to pray even more. Amazingly, that night, Jesus received the help of this one strengthening angel to pray, yet refused the help of 12 legions of angels to fight. While we won't know all the mysteries of prayer, we should know there's something supernatural taking place through it, 
and behind it. Secondly, subpoint B, we learned that prayer is a difficult activity. We started today's passage seeing Jesus on bended knees, but the picture I get in verse 44 is of him doubled over in agony. I think the author of Hebrews had this scene in mind in chapter 5, verse 7. He had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The stress was so severe that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I think this, today this condition is called hematidrosis. Triggered by extreme distress or fear, such as facing death, torture, or ongoing abuse. I'm not suggesting that we should install kneeling pads on the pews or sweat blood at our next prayer meeting. But maybe we could use some Christ-like earnestness. Maybe our prayers are no sweat because we're too safe with our requests. How about requests that keep us up at night, agonize us? I think of salvation of lost family members, victory over ensnaring sin, transformation of our government leaders. Our prayers should be difficult, not easy. If we continue in our bland prayer life, I think we'll start to look like the sleeping disciples in verse 45 more than our Lord Jesus in verse 44. Thirdly, subpoint C, we learned that prayer is a moral activity. In verse 40, Christ says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In verse 46, he says, pray lest you enter into temptation. It's one and the same message. It's what the apostles needed to hear immediately in the garden. Resist the temptation to despair. Don't stop praying. We also need to hear this message repeatedly before our own struggles and even after our failures. But of course, like the 11, we do at times fail to pray and fail to do it earnestly. We do not consistently follow Colossians 4.2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. But if we do prepare prayerfully for spiritual battle, we'll be more like Jesus, who doesn't fight or take flight. He did not hide but he continued his path. Let's see what happens in verses 47 to 48. And there he'll show us how to respond kindly to betrayal. While Jesus is teaching the eleven, a crowd approached. It's led by Judas Iscariot, the guy to those who would arrest Jesus. Earlier in the week, he had conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Before arriving at Gethsemane, Judas had arranged in advance a sign to identify our Lord in the dark. He told them, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. At the scene, he immediately went up to Jesus, greeted him as rabbi, and kissed him. On the other side, there was no hesitation from Jesus himself. He did not shrink back. 
He did not hide in the darkness. Strengthened in prayer to follow the Father's will, the Son rose to meet the challenge. He went forward to meet the mob. Our Lord spoke up and stepped up to identify himself as Jesus of Nazareth so that they'd have no trouble identifying him, so that there'll be no chance of harming the the 11 with him. Now we can put all this together from the parallel gospel accounts, but what's unique about Luke is the words of Christ in verse 48. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? In other words, Jesus is saying, Judas, are you really going through with this? You would dare to take a sign of affection and turn it into a sign of treachery? This peck on the cheek is worse than a slap. And so the kiss of the enemy is indeed deceitful. Besides drawing attention to the kiss, Jesus addressed Judas by his name. That's unique to Luke as well. It's one thing to call him friend in a generic sense, as in Matthew 26, verse 50. It takes holy character and fervent prayer to warn and call the betrayer one more time by his intimate name, a name he has spoken for years. Jesus responded kindly to his betrayer. And this wasn't the only time or the last time he wisely restrained his lips while he suffered. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return, First Peter says. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Let's be honest. If we were betrayed like Jesus, we probably have some choice words for our enemy. But that goes to show that we need to pray earnestly if we're going to do good to those who hate us, avoid avenging ourselves, if we're going to overcome evil with good. Let's pray so that we respond kindly to betrayal if and when it happens to us. And we know what happens when we don't prepare prayerfully for spiritual battle and respond kindly to betrayal. We see it in the next few verses but we also see Jesus and learn from him how to lead peacefully during persecution. Now we turn our attention from one of the twelve to the rest of the twelve. Right as the enemies laid their hands on Jesus and took him, the disciples asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? One of them, however, didn't wait for an answer. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Apostle John reveals later that the attacker was Peter, and the victim was a man named Malchus. I think for decades, the identities were kept secret for the sake of Peter's protection. John and Luke both tell us that it was the servant's right ear that was lopped off. It's likely that Peter was right-handed like most, and Malchus had his back turned when he was struck. So Peter wasn't exactly Samwise the Brave or Aragorn here. He attacked someone while he wasn't looking. The real hero is Jesus, and the true courage is found in him. He restrains the eleven and tells them, permit even this, 
We see in John 18, 11 as well that he turns to Peter specifically and says, put your sword into the sheet. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And not only does the sword return to its place, the Luke tells us that the ear returns to its place. Jesus heals Malchus, one of the enemy. But sadly, such kindness will not be returned with praise and thanksgiving. They continue with the arrest. Here, no good deed of Jesus goes unpunished, even as he led peacefully during persecution. Let's stop here for some applications. It's hard to lead peacefully like Jesus, even without the whole persecution thing. Whether we're leading at work or leading at home, we lean towards one of two extremes. On one hand, it's easy to respond with anger, with hostility, when there's opposition. But that's not peaceful. Or we can be passive and withdraw from trouble. But that's not leading. Jesus shows us how to do both correctly. He shows us peaceful leadership. I don't know about you, but I need to follow that example. Personally, I think of my own roles as role as a pastor, how I must be gentle, not violent, as 1 Timothy 3.3 tells us. You know, on Friday night adulting uh, parent classes, um, parenting classes, there have been some reminders from James 1, 19 to 20 as application for parents, how we must be slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Maybe you can relate. As leaders, let's pray that the Lord would grant us that wisdom from above, pure, peaceable, and gentle. In the final portion of today's passage, we see how with such wisdom, we can submit faithfully under God's plan. After speaking with Judas Iscariot and his disciples, Jesus finally turns to the mob. If you look look closely at their faces, these are not tattooed motorcycle gangs. They're respected leaders who commit what Jerry Bridges call respectable sins. They fear the people by day, plot against Jesus by night. Now they execute their plan. And this arrest had to take place to fulfill the scriptures. Interestingly, Luke provides another perspective of this dark event. In the second half of verse 53 of chapter 22, we get another glimpse of the spiritual warfare taking place. There have been a few already in this chapter. Quick review, verse 3, we saw Satan enter into Judas, Iscariot. Verse 31, our Lord reveals how Satan has asked for Peter to sip them as wheat. In verse 43, an angel appeared to Jesus from heaven. We just saw that. Now in verse 53, there's this mention of the power of darkness. What is this power of darkness? The exact same phrase is found in Colossians 1.13. To describe God's act of saving us, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. See how the power of darkness is in direct contrast to the kingdom of the Son of his love? There's reason to believe that the darkness here is the realm of Satan, whom Martin Luther calls 
the prince of darkness grim. Here's another relevant passage written later by Luke in Acts 26, 18. The phrase power of darkness is not there, but the individual words are. Let me start from verse 17. And just for context, by the way, this, keep in mind this is a flashback. Jesus is speaking to Paul in, at this earlier conversation at his conversion, commissioning him to be a gospel-preaching apostle to the nations. So Acts 26, 17 to 18 says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So both Colossians and Acts suggest that the words power and darkness taken together relate to Satan. That helps us as we return to Luke twenty-two fifty-three, and see how Satan's plan comes together. The chief priests, the captains of the temple, the elders are the devil's servants and tools. As holy as they look in festival season, as revered as they are among the people, it turns out that they're no better than any other sinner. Like all the rest of the fallen human race, they belong to the world, which lies under the sway of the wicked one. They carry out the murderous desires of their father, the devil, and seek to kill Christ. But as they fulfill the will of their father, Jesus fulfills the will of his father. It was in God's plan for Christ, the light of the world, to surrender to the devil, the power of darkness. But it's also true that this is not only the hour of the enemy. Our Lord taught earlier in John 12, 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Just prior to this scene, he also prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. So our Lord submitted faithfully to the Father's plan. It's a plan that will bring glory to him. He will not fight. He will not take flight. Are we ready to face our own trials and temptations? Some of us have been studying 1 Peter Sunday mornings, and you know that it may be God's will for you to suffer for doing good and suffer as a Christian. And that's a blessing. It's an opportunity to glorify God. Of course, our suffering and glory do not compare to what Jesus has done. But still in our circumstances, let's prepare prayerfully, respond kindly, lead peacefully, and submit faithfully 